I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week. If you have been listening, you know that already. In fact, I'll be covering Monday as well. Remember to listen to Dave's show both at 6 to 8 in the morning, and then Dave shows up generally at 6 p.m., although Wednesdays at 7 p.m. here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Obviously, stay tuned throughout the day for interesting news and commentary. Folks, I spoke to you yesterday about how dangerous it is to have a bureaucracy that remains unchecked by democracy. Now, what do I mean by that? You and I elect our representatives. And by representatives, I mean those in the legislature and the executive. That is, your state senators, your state representatives, and your governor. Of course, you have local uh, elected officials as well, and national. But I want to talk about the state level for a moment, and then I want to extrapolate out to the federal level and how important it is for you to vote and be heard. This is not a plea to go out and vote. I think you should vote. I think you should vote in every election. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. What I want to talk about right now is how when we build a system in which your vote doesn't connect to the behavior of government, meaning your vote is a joke, your vote is irrelevant, your vote is nonsense, and unelected bureaucrats, often leftist bureaucrats, by the way, historically right now, in in today's day, the bureaucrats are overwhelmingly leftist. But put that even aside for a moment, I may or may not be able to do so in this discussion, you don't want a bunch of unelected bureaucrats being paid by you, mind you, making important decisions. Well, what is a bureaucracy? A bureaucracy is the group of people that sort of run the everyday mundane operations of government. That's not an insult. They do an important function. I was a bureaucrat. I worked in in the federal government in a position that was clearly part of the bureaucracy. That's okay. I was not a leftist, but I was part of the bureaucracy. So what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. The key, though, is nobody elected me to that position. Nobody elected any of these bureaucrats. So we need to ensure that the bureaucrats are given guidance and have oversight by you. And how do you do that? You give them oversight by electing government officials who act as their bosses, who act to provide the oversight of the people. What happens if you, if you say, well, you know, that, um, that Department of uh, 
uh, motor vehicles. Up in New York, we had the Department of Motor Vehicles. We have it here, of course, in Little Rock, but we don't call it that, and it's a good thing, and here's why. In New York, historically, the DMV, as we called it, was awful. You'd go there and wait there for hours, like you're in some third-world country trying to get a visa to come to America. It was after, and people were wondering, look, your government, well, we don't have enough money, and we do this, and you'd go there, and the people would bark at you, like you worked for them, because, of course, you needed something from them. And whenever you need something from a government actor, they have a sense of power. They have, they have actual power, and they have a sense of power. And if that power is not kept in check by the watchful eye of the public through their representatives, that power runs amok. You know, there's that saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's the danger. And so you'd go in and they were rude to you. They were dismissive. They had long lines. You see four people in the background uh, milling about and one teller, so to speak. I don't know what you call the person, but one person open and four people. And you say, hey, over here. Can I, uh, they never make eye contact. Never. So that was absolute awful service. I can tell you, by the way. When I go to, I think it's called the revenue office here to take care of my uh, motor vehicle information as well as pay my taxes or not, you have to like declare your taxes. By the way, I've been here, the, lo- the longest place that I've lived as an adult is here in Arkansas and I still don't understand this whole notion where I got to tell them I still live in my house and I still have my car for them to then provide me with a tax amount. But so be it. But it's just an odd system. In, uh, up in the Northeast, you know what they would do? You own those things until you tell them that you don't own those things. And I actually think that's a better way of doing things. But it's no great tragedy. But I can't tell you how helpful they have always been. I go in. First of all, there's sometimes there's a line. But then there's several people taking customers. And when you get up there, I would say, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do here. I don't understand the system where I'm supposed to tell you what I own before I pay the taxes, et cetera. And they walk me through it every single time. So just by the way, this is a credit. I'm giving a, a shout out to the folks at I think it's called the revenue office here in Little Rock, because I really think they do a wonderful job. Why do they do a wonderful job, folks? Because if they don't, you complain to your elected officials. And I don't even know. I, I gather that's your state officials, meaning I gather that's a state office. But when you have bureaucrats with no oversight, good luck. They'll be rude. They won't be efficient. And they won't be pursuing your interests. That's the most important part. You are the one who has to say how government works. You hire government. Now, of course, it doesn't mean you get to go up to the cop when he pulls you over and say, oh, well, just before you give me that ticket, you're fired. It'd be nice sometimes, you'd think, but it doesn't work that way. But it means you have oversight overall as to the process. And if the process is broken or what they're doing as a system, we've heard all about the systemic this, systemic that, 
What about systemic inefficiency? What about systemic corruption? What about systemic failure to achieve the goals of the electorate? I'm not saying those things necessarily exist, but they can. And why and how do we avoid those? Through oversight by elected officials, because you have the final say who gets elected. So I have two points to take away from that. One is issue number one on the upcoming ballot, which is a vote to put in the Constitution a half cent sales tax. Remember, it's a half cent off of every dollar. So a half cent total, the half cent off of every dollar sales tax to be pickpocketed out of your wallet that would go directly to the highway department. Say what? What? Well, that, that can't mean that. You see, Rob, because I want to call up my uh, elected official and call up my state senator, my state rep, or my governor and tell them, uh, I think the uh, highway department is spending too much money or their their behavior is not good and they need to be under control. So the legislature needs to dial back the funding or maybe they need some more money or I, I'd like to have some community control over that. Nope. The money goes directly to them. Directly to them. What's your oversight? Well, you shouldn't be doing this. Okay, says the head of the highway department, uh, because we got the money. We're going to do it. I remember one bureaucrat I heard years ago in a different context say, well, I can do it because I write the checks. I have the money. So you can tell me you don't like it, but I'm going to do it because I still sign the checks. That's why, ultimately, the only way to have a check, no pun intended, on the bureaucracy is that the people write the checks. And the people write the checks by electing the elected officials, and then they keep a watchful eye over the unelected, often leftist bureaucrats. It's the only way to do it. So you must vote no on issue one on this upcoming ballot. Because, first of all, we need oversight all the time over our unelected bureaucracy. And if you take away the power of the purse, as you learned about on Sunday morning cartoons, was it Saturday morning, Saturday morning cartoons, I, I made that mistake because, you know, the Sunday morning shows now are essentially Sunday morning cartoons, aren't they? So the power of the purse is where the legislature gets to say to the unelected bureaucracy, When they're doing something wrong, oh, you don't want to listen to us? We advise you to do it this way. Well, I'm not going to do it this way, says the unelected bureaucrat. Oh, okay, says the legislature. Uh, You know that budget you had? Cut. Go do your job now. We ain't giving you no money. No more money. How about that? That's the check. That's a real check, folks. It's serious, and it's not a joke. It's how, in fact, government operates. I would like to see the legislature do it more often. I don't think the legislature holds up the budget of various state entities, various bureaucracies enough. They should be more involved. But that's perhaps a broader discussion left for another time. We'll see how it plays out today. But what I can tell you for sure is that zero check equals zero oversight equals runaway government. In fact, 
if you think about how the Soviet Union was run, of course, it was an autocracy. There were no real elections. So the people had no check over the so-called elected officials. And then the bureaucracy was huge because what leftism believes in is, an, is that the state runs everything. So government ran everything. So even those unelected officials had insufficient oversight over the bureaucracy because it was huge. So that's why conservatives, one of the reasons, generally believe that government should be of limited size. Because when it becomes so overwhelmingly large, even in a democratic process, the oversight is virtually impossible. All right, Robert, let's continue this conversation in the next segment. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. You are listening to The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. We got traffic and we got news right now. Filling in for Dave the remainder of this week and next Monday. We have been talking both today and previously, about the importance of the democratic check on an unelected bureaucracy. It sounds complicated. The words can be large, but the concepts are simple. You own the government. You hire its leaders. Its leaders do what you say, or you boot them out and you hire a new set. The only constraint on that, of course, is the Constitution, both at the federal level and at the state level. Meaning, you can't tell your legislator, well, you see, I want you to do this uh, behavior uh, that uh, restricts people's ability to, to speak in the public square. Well, the elected official would say, well, I can't because both the federal and state Constitution have a right to free speech in public. And the and the Voters said, well, I don't care. I, I don't like it. And, of course, there is a method to change that. That's a constitutional amendment, but that's uh, rather challenging. And most elected, I, I would dare say virtually all elected officials would say, we're not looking to change the First Amendment. Now, leftists don't believe in the First Amendment, but I don't think they would concede they want to change the First Amendment because they are so dishonest about their attacks on freedom of speech and freedom of thought. The way they deal with that problem is they embed the education system, the public education system, with leftists to indoctrinate our children uh, in a um, uh, re-education camp style of political uh, brainwashing. That's right. That's exactly right. I've seen videos At grade school, where teachers are telling students about how great it is to vote for Biden and to have the first vice president to be a woman and a woman of color. And just pure political partisanship. And if you look at higher education, I've looked, I've read articles, I didn't study it directly, but I've read articles about the population of legal educators. That's what I do for a living. And they are, it's something like 95, 99% leftist, 95% leftist. Do you think lawyers are 95% leftist? They ain't. Oh, well, you see, Rob, most of the lawyers who are conservatives, they don't want to go into academia. It's real hard to get conservatives into academia. Nonsense. That's a lie propagated by the left 
as they outwardly discriminate against conservatives in legal education because they want to indoctrinate future lawyers to be leftists. That's the reality, folks. We're talking about how we must have a check on the bureaucracy or the bureaucracy inevitably runs amok. And there was an article in today's New York Times. Rob, why do you keep reading that New York Times? It's a rag at this point. I know it. I know it. It's like that. You get bit by the mosquito and you keep scratching. And you know, the more you scratch, the more it's going to itch. And you keep scratching and you keep scratching. I don't have an answer for you folks. Other than perhaps it gives me wonderful fodder to talk about how the left is continuing to run amok when I am on the Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Maybe that's why. But the truth is, even those days and weeks that I'm not on Dave's show, I read it. So that's an incomplete answer at best. But nonetheless, let's talk about this article. This article is entitled, Barr Defends Right to Intrude in Cases as He Sees Fit. Remember, of course, uh, Bill Barr is the attorney general, and when they're talking about cases, they're talking about cases that the Justice Department brings. The Justice Department is the federal government's prosecutor's office. We have a prosecutor's office, of course, throughout the state, in Arkansas and every other state, and they're divided up regionally by county. But the federal government, all of that is run through the attorney general. So it says, Bard defends his right to intrude in cases as he sees fit. Before we even get into the article, think about the loaded language that the New York Times uses there. He's intruding. He's intruding on Intruding? I worked for the Justice Department. I, my boss was... I forget what they call it, the, like the, the division head, something like that. And then there was uh, a, a deputy assistant attorney. No, no. Then there was an assistant attorney general. No, they were, I was right the first time. There was a deputy assistant attorney general, then an assistant attorney general, then uh, an uh, associate attorney general, and then the attorney general, something like that. I, I, I probably missed some steps in there. But that was the hierarchy. I was a line attorney a trial and appellate attorney in the United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. And I worked for that chain of command. Who's at the top of that pyramid? I just told you, the attorney general. Much like in the military, who's at the top of the pyramid? Well, the general, whatever the top general is called. And this article says, well, Barr is intruding, intruding, intruding. How do you intrude on the operation that you oversee? Well, the general from the army is intruding on the lieutenant colonel's oversight. Wait, wait, what? The general in the army is intruding when the sergeant decided, that, wait, What? All right, Robert, let's continue this thought. We will be right back. We got to get to some news and then traffic and then weather. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick this week as Dave Ellswick is on vacation. Right now, here's the news 101.1 FM.
This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave all week and this coming Monday here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Folks, we have been talking about the importance of checks on unelected bureaucrats because you're in charge of the government, because your tax dollars come out of your pocket after you work hard to fund the government. So when the government barks orders to you, you need to constantly remember that you control them. And if they don't do what you want them to do, vote for the other guy or run for office yourself. And we're talking about this article in the New York Times that says Barr defends right to intrude in cases. He doesn't have a right to intrude. That language is so loaded by the left. Right to intrude? Tell me, if you, if you ran a, a convenience store, if you owned a convenience store, would you use the locution, well, I'm going to intrude on the cashier's operation of the cash register? No, I'm going to inform the cashier that he's not doing it properly, if he's not, obviously. Or I'm going to educate the cashier on what she should do differently. That's what he would say. Why? Because you own the store. Now, of course, the heads of agencies don't own the agency. They are hired by the owners. You know who the owners are? You! The taxpayers. That's who the owners are. You own the government. When we talk, you know, I work at the UA Little Rock William H. Bowen School of Law. My views are my views alone and not necessarily those of the Bowen School of Law or UA Little Rock or the UA system, incidentally. I have to make that disclaimer, with, and it's no problem. I think it's good that we make it clear that I don't speak for the university and the university doesn't speak for me. In fact, I don't particularly understand what it means for a university to speak. Sometimes you see these across the country, these heads of agencies say things like, well, um, I've seen law schools like in California say, well, that that professor is saying something contrary to our interests or our preferences or our our who's our Kimasabi? Our? I am the law school. What do I mean by that? I mean that every employee of that law school is a constituent part of that law school. And so when you have some person saying, well, this is our view, our view, if it's contra- if you're speaking out about the view and against the view of an employee, it's not our view because you're contrary to one of your constituent members. I use that as an analogy to say when government acts, it acts at your behest. And if it's not doing what you want it to do, you need to tell it and you need to vote that way. Now, of course, given a population, you'll have competing views. And so the majority will win out in terms of operations. But that's why government needs to be inherently humble. It's not, but inherently humble, recognizing that whatever it does, it does so with the approval of the populace, but with some inevitable dissent. So, Barr defends right to intrude. No, no. 
I haven't even started to read you the article yet, and I already know it's a loaded leftist article because he there he has never claimed, nor is there a right to intrude. That's sort of like saying, I defend the right to intrude into my home. Intrude into my home? I've got the key. I purchased the lock. I walk in at my permission. Can you imagine if the cops showed up to your house and knocked on your door and said, sure, uh, please come out of the house. Okay. By the way, don't. But, okay. You come out of the house and, sure, um, we have reason to believe that you're intruding in this house. Um intruding no no this is uh, i maybe you misunderstood officer i live here here's my driver's license it shows you my address oh no 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 so we understand that you live there you say but but we're the government and we're the unelected bureaucrats and we are nonetheless concerned that you're intruding i don't understand officer i'm intruding on my own house says you the unelected bureaucrat well that's right that's right. We we just want to do a double check as to whether your property that you own and purchased, uh, you're entitled to use it. Well, based on what? Based on what? Well, based on our unelected bureaucratic say-so. That's what the left is saying here. That unelected bureaucrats are telling you, your elected officials, and those appointed officials who change with administrations, that they are not entitled to act as a check over the unelected bureaucrats. Well, of course the unelected bureaucrats are saying that. What else do you expect them to say? Inevitably, people and institutions pursue their own interests. And the, in, and the interests of unelected bureaucrats, even though there are a lot of good people who do those jobs, as an entity, if left unchecked, is to seek more power and less oversight. That's what they want. That's why, by the way, you see crony corrupt organizations like the Municipal League. That's right, I said it. The Municipal League is a crony corrupt organization who pursues the interests of unelected bureaucrats over your taxpayer dollars. And they come and lobby the legislature every cycle to reduce the government oversight over municipalities. Remember, state government gives money to local government. And remember, state law applies to local government. For example, the State Freedom of Information Act applies to local government. So every cycle, you see the municipal league say, well, can we have less Freedom of Information Act oversight over the activities of our elected officials? That's better for us. Without shame, they show up before the legislature, tin cup in hand, asking for less oversight and more money. And here's the real travesty of it all, folks. And this private organization is paid for by your local tax dollars. Because the localities take money raised from local taxes and perhaps provided by state government as well. And they turn around and hand that money to this private organization so that they can turn around the private organization, the municipal league, and show up in the state legislature and pin up in hand, beg for less oversight. So you're paying to fund this private organization to reduce your oversight over local government. And so far, that's legal. 
We're looking to change that. But so far, that's legal. Why do government entities at all have lobbyists? This is a privately hired hired lobbyist. By the way, there are various local and state entities that hire lobbyists. I've heard them refer to their lobbyists all the time. How is it that they have a lobbyist? Why is there someone whose job is to, in state or local government, to go to the state government and lobby? No, 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 no. The state government is supposed to make decisions about the operation of state entities, for example. And if they need information, they can call up that state entity. If that state entity wants to share information, one of the many unelected bureaucrats working at that state entity can make an appointment with the elected officials or come testify before the legislature about issues of the day. But why is the state funding a lobbyist and its lobbyists in state entities to turn around and come to the state elected officials and tell them, we want less oversight, we want more money? No, no, no. Yet another inefficiency where they're spending your tax dollars, your tax dollars, to make themselves less accountable. That's what's going on. There's a bill for that, by the way. Dan Sullivan has a bill for that. If we don't pass these bills, folks, then my response is throw the bums out. Throw them all out! Meaning, if your state government is not providing you the oversight that you need, that you deserve, that you pay for, then let's get a new batch in. The Republicans are in control now. I'd love to say the conservatives are in control now. I'm not quite so confident. Some of these Republicans are not conservative enough for my taste. I'll throw them all out. I'll throw my friends out. I'll throw my non-friends out. I'll throw them all out if I have my say. If they don't achieve their goals. Now, that doesn't mean every bill that I want to see passed needs to be passed for me to vote next time for my candidates. But it does mean that if they can't get it done, well, guess what? Let's give somebody else a try. Now, I'm not going to give this somebody else to some leftist. But it's put up or shut up. It's show up or get lost. We were able to get out of the Senate this in the primary, and it, it will become effective this November, essentially, or actually, I should say, uh, up in Jonesboro a candidate, I'm not even going to mention his name now because I'm not looking to bash on individuals, but we were able to get a a fellow out of the Senate who was more interested in the title of senator than the job of senator. I'll tell you who who doesn't fit that bill, Dan Sullivan. He's interested in the job and could care less about the title. That's the guy you want to be elected. And I'm not campaigning for him. He's the next senator from Jonesboro. But my point is that too many elected officials also aren't doing their job, and we don't have enough oversight at that level either. Well, why you shouldn't you be complaining about everything? Oh, I can find problems in every level. However, does that mean I'm entirely dissatisfied? No. When I came to Arkansas, 
It was a democratic state. And now it's a distinctly Republican state. Now, I'm not claiming cause and effect. I'd love to. But I'm not claiming cause and effect. But what I'm telling you is we're moving in the right direction. That's an improvement. And the next improvement, I want a conservative elected official group. Because I don't think we can say that right now. We can say it's Republican. I don't think we can say it's conservative. No. So we're going to move in that direction. As you know, by the way, I'm hopeful that often my often co-host Excuse me. Bear with me. My often co-host, Chris Corbett, is going to run for elected office for state Senate in 2022. Um, Take a look, by the way, at my Twitter feed, because I tweeted out. You like how I got all these terms right for once? I tweeted out a wonderful picture of Chris's new mobile office. I mean that literally. He's got a van. It's a mobile office. Take a look at that picture. It's fantastic at Rob Steinbuck, at R-O-B-S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H on the Twitter gram. And he would be a wonderful addition to the conservative movement here in Arkansas. And I think that that'd be a good place to stop. And let's take our final break of the 6 a.m. hour. You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbuck is filling in for Dave. Robert is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. We have some traffic to get to, and we also got to pay some other bills. So let's get to that. You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Stockbeck, filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. As you know, the Dave Ellswick Show is on from 6 to 8 a.m. every day of the week and all days but Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. and on Wednesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. generally. Stay tuned uh, throughout the day to, to 101.1 FM The Answer for outstanding news and commentary. We are talking about this New York Times piece. I'd like to call it an article, but piece uh, perhaps connotes in various dimensions a more accurate view of what I'm reading. Barr defends his right to intrude in cases as he sees fit. Virtually every word in that title. I've read you zero words from the text of the article from the piece. Virtually every word of the title demonstrates how biased, how misleading, how inappropriate the article is. He defends. Defends? One doesn't defend one's right to do what one has a right to do. I defend my right to speech. I have a right to speech. I guess you can defend it if someone's intruding upon it. Right. If someone was trying to prevent Barr from doing his job, he would say, I'm uh, able to do my job. So maybe in that respect, defend is the right word. But now when the next word is right to intrude, one doesn't have a right to intrude. Intrude means to intervene, to enter against resistance. That's what intrude means. You don't intrude into your own house. You don't intrude, if you're an owner of a business, into the operations of the business. I, as a teacher, don't intrude into my classroom. 
In each of those examples, the individual has the right to interact in that context. There's no intrusion. Intrusion is a forceful violation. One doesn't have a right to intrude. One has a right to do, to enter, to speak, to be involved. Right to intrude. In cases, as he sees fit, ends the title, as he sees fit, as opposed to whom? What is the, what is the measure by which we evaluate one's operation of a business, one's operation of his own home, my operation of a classroom. Rob Steinbuck teaches his class as he sees fit. Well, yes and no. Meaning I teach my class as I see fit based on my sound judgment, consistent with my education and knowledge and experience. So I don't walk into a law class and start teaching poetry. I don't walk into a law class and try to indoctrinate my students in leftist or conservative, by the way, but it doesn't happen on the latter by anybody, in leftist political philosophy. By going in and saying, here's the law. These are the facts. And let's talk about what underlies that law. What's the political and judicial philosophy that underlies it. <clears throat> and judicial philosophies compete with that law. That's how I teach my class. Not, so it's not, as I see fit, as I see fit, as I see fit, as opposed to what? As what others see fit? I was hired for my judgment. Now, there are probably some leftists out there in society that don't like my judgment. That's why I'm tenure and academic freedom, by the way. Folks, if you're a conservative and you've heard this dribble about, oh, if tenure is designed to protect liberals, competent liberals, they can never be fired. Nonsense. Now, I'm not saying it was never the case, but what I'm telling you now, you know who tenure protects and the only people it protects? Essentially, conservatives, because it protects those who oppose across academia what is the majority will. Well, the supermajority will in academia is leftism. So if you're a leftist, tenure doesn't protect you because they ain't trying to fire you. They ain't trying to get rid of you. They ain't trying to suppress you. So if you're a conservative and you think tenure and academic freedom are bad, you've been miseducated. Is that a word? You have been misinformed. If you think tenure is a bad thing and you're a conservative, you don't know how it operates. Call me, text me, write me, tweet me, and I'll, I'll educate you. I'll learn you. All right, Robert, we are uh, hitting the closing music, so that means it is time for the end of the 6 a.m. hour. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick this week, as Dave Ellswick is on vacation in Florida, I believe, or around that area. Um, We will be back. We have news. We got weather. We got traffic and more Robert Steinbach, more of his insights to you on The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.
And I am Robert Stomach filling in for Dave all this week and next Monday as well. As you know, the Dave Ellswick Show is on 101.1 FM, The Answer, here every morning from 6 to 8 a.m. And again, throughout the week, generally from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., but for Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. So stay tuned uh, at those times for the Dave Ellswick Show and throughout the day for wonderful news and commentary. I am talking with you about this hit piece. That's the only way to describe it accurately by the New York Times against the attorney general. And I've been over and over the title, the misleading, deceptive, intentionally so title. Our defense right to intrude in cases as he sees fit. So let's read some of the language now of the article. And I use that term article charitably, needless to say, as I have described before. The article begins by uh, Katie Benner. Katie Benner. I don't know her offhand of her. Uh, Attorney General William Barr said on Wednesday that as the nation's top law enforcement official, he had the right to intervene in investigations into overruled career lawyers, castigating his own department and attacking what he described as politically motivated inquiries. He had the right to intervene in investigations and overrule career lawyers. Is that not exactly the job of someone who provides oversight? When I worked in the Department of Justice, the very department we're talking about here, I did civil work, incidentally. Civil work, for those who may not know, is if you have two big columns, so to speak, of what types of lawsuits there are, and you can divide it up in different categories, but one way to divide it up is criminal. Criminal is when the government goes after somebody for violating some law, and then the government imposes that penalty, either a fine or jail time. There's a little bit blurring at the margins, but that's the generally that's generally the right description of a criminal action. A civil action is generally, but This general is a little smaller, and I'll describe in a moment. Generally, when one person sues another person. So if you sue your neighbor because your neighbor's dog is encroaching on your lawn or you get in a car accident and somebody hits you, that's one person suing another person. Nobody goes to jail because neither person has the power to put anybody in jail. So it's only a suit about money. And again, there's some difference on the margin because sometimes you cannot sue for money. You can say, stop that guy from doing that. That's called an injunction. But okay. And so I said those are private lawsuits, but actually the government can also act as someone who sues uh, for money when the government is quasi-harmed or harmed. But also the flip side and the more important or larger side and what I was involved in is, let's say the government harms you where you can sue the government for money. In certain contexts, it's hard in Arkansas because actually Arkansas, we need to change the Constitution on that. But federally, you can sue the government if it damages you. And I represented the government in that instance. And 
again, there's no criminal behavior involved. There's no deeply wrongful behavior involved in which someone would go to jail, but someone was harmed, potentially, and seeks redress for that harm. I defended the government in those cases in which we believed that the government didn't harm the individual. We well recognize that not all lawsuits are valid. And I represented the government in those lawsuits that we believed were not valid. So I would write briefs. I would appear in court. I would argue motions and I would argue appeals. That was my job. Every single one of those activities was reviewed by someone higher up in the organization. Every single one. I could not send out a letter, a brief, a filing without the written explicit permission of my superior. As it should be. My superiors were there longer than I was had a broader view of what was going on and were charged with reviewing my work because it wasn't an organization run by the members. You know, when it comes to education, for example, example, we have this notion of faculty governance. That's a different structure. But the Justice Department and virtually all bureaucracies, if not all, I'm not sure, in the government, is a hierarchical structure. So everything I did was reviewed by the higher-ups. And what this article is suggesting is when you get to that higher-up higher, higher up that I'm describing, they should not be subject to oversight. Wait, what? The, the highest unelected official all of a sudden is free to do what he or she sees fit, to borrow a term from the title of this article? As he sees fit, says the title of this article, referring to what Barr does in, quote, intruding, end quote, into cases. So I have to have oversight. My boss has to have oversight. His or her boss must have oversight. His or her boss must have oversight. But when you get to the highest level of unelected bureaucrat, he or she should not be subject to the oversight by the appointed official confirmed by the U.S. Senate and appointed by the President of the United States? No, that shouldn't be a source of oversight, says the leftist. Says the leftist. Isn't that perverse? Isn't that obscene? And of course, I don't mean that in the uh, sort of purient obscenity sense. It's just bizarre and awful and disgusting. There should be no oversight of the highest level unelected bureaucrat, even though every other unelected bureaucrat has oversight, by the elected official. What's the point of electing official? To march in parades? To show up on Sunday morning television shows? <clears throat> Excuse me. The job for which we hire the president is to provide oversight and to appoint other folks who are confirmed by the democratic process through the confirmation process in the U.S. Senate so that they provide the oversight of the unelected bureaucrats. That is their job. Not according to the New York Times. 
because the New York Times and other leftist propaganda institutions are for the unelected leftist bureaucracy. So be afraid. Be very afraid when you hear this kind of nonsense. We're through one paragraph of this thing, and it's two pages long. The next paragraph goes on. Speaking at an event, Mr. Barr delivered remarks that scanned, that scanned as a rebuke. I'm not sure I understand that language. Mr. Barr delivered remarks that scanned as a rebuke of career Justice Department lawyers who have questioned his level of involvement, a management style in which he has cast himself as the ultimate authority on almost every issue that the department faces, including antitrust settlements, criminal prosecutions, and civil litigation. Folks, let me let you and the general public into a little secret here. There's an antitrust division in the United States Department of Justice. There's a criminal division in the United States Department of Justice. There's a civil litiga- civil division in the United States Department of Justice. Those aren't the only ones. There's an environmental, there's a civil rights, there's a tax. I can't remember offhand what others, but I think there are some others. So this author says, well, he wants to have oversight over antitrust, criminal, and civil divisions. You mean three of the main divisions? Perhaps the three largest divisions in the Department of Justice? Attorney General Barr has a temerity to want to oversee those divisions? What's he supposed to be overseeing? The PR department? The janitorial department? He inherently, by structure, by design has oversight over those divisions, and these leftists want to tell you, oh my goodness, he wants to have oversight over the three largest divisions in the Department of Justice. That's That's his job. But the leftists set it up like, oh my gosh, he is, I'm going to use their term, intruding on the runaway operations of an unelected leftist bureaucracy. That's what they want. That's what the leftists want. An unelected fourth branch of government that is responsible to nobody, that is not responsible to the people, and as it turns out, is overwhelmingly leftist. Remember, leftists are creatures of opportunity. They like an unelected bureaucracy that's not responsible to anybody because that bureaucracy happens to be leftist. If the bureaucracy was conservative, they would complain about it entirely. Leftists believe in the philosophy of ends justify the means. His vision is not consistent with this institution's views, so he needs to be fired. In unelected bureaucracies, for example, across this country, in higher education, in legal education, say about conservatives. Well, what conservative, there, was, there is <clears throat> a professor up at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, not for law school, but I got two degrees there. And there was a conservative professor who's a genius. She's absolutely a genius. She not only has a law degree, she has a medical degree. Hey, she just happened to get a medical degree. That's how brilliant this woman is. And she wrote an article. I've talked about it before in the Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. But she said, look, I think there are certain values 
from the 1950s that we need to get back to. Not all the values, the 1950s, as she said in her article, also had racism embedded in it. And she said, that's bad. But that doesn't mean everything about the 1950s were bad. The skinny ties are good. She didn't say that. I'm saying that. <clears throat> she said, here are the values that, from the 1950s that we need to get back to. You should get married before you have children. What a crazy idea that is, right? You should get married before you. Absolutely. Of course, it's consistent with religious beliefs as well. You should get married before you have children. Amen. I 100% agree with that. You should finish at least high school. Don't drop out from high school. That's right. You should respect authority. That doesn't mean you don't question when they are abusive. But that means, for example, when you get pulled over by a cop and he gives you an order other than go over there and shoot somebody, which they don't do. He gives you a lawful order. You comply. <clears throat> and if you have a dispute as to what he's doing, guess what? You don't argue with him because he ain't going to agree with you anyway. You go to court and you get justice in court. I tweeted out a picture of the justice bus from Chris Corbett. That's how you get justice. You hire somebody like Chris Corbett and you go to court. All right, Robert, let's pause right there. We will continue this conversation in the next segment. You are listening to The Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave is on vacation this week. We will be right back. We got news coming up right here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is The Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week and this coming Monday, please stay tuned throughout the day to 101.1 FM, The Answer, for interesting news and commentary. We are continuing our discussion that we began this morning about the importance of oversight of an unelected bureaucracy. I've described to you in detail how the Department of Justice operates, and I can tell you from firsthand experience. I was a trial and appellate attorney for the United States Department of Justice. I was an unelected bureaucrat in that organization. Now, I was not a leftist, and I believe I stood in the minority in that regard, but I was an unelected bureaucrat, <clears throat> excuse me, in that organization. So I point this out to say, I don't have anything inherently against unelected bureaucrats. I don't like unelected leftist bureaucrats because they observe a philosophy of the ends justify the means, and conservatives tend not to do that. But I also recognize that it was critically important for me and anybody else in that role to have oversight. It was not my job to establish policy. I remember when I was an unelected bureaucrat in the U.S. Senate. I worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I remember when I started, someone said to me, now remember, your job is not to give political advice. So when you are speaking with a senator, you don't sit there and say, well, this is good or bad politics. It's not as if you could never comment on that, but that's not your job. And your job is to answer questions about the law. I was hired as an attorney 
for the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. So there was this divide in which the elected officials determined the policy. And I, of course, understood that. And I said, well, I don't understand. What, how, why would it be otherwise? And this person, I recall this, told me at the time, said, well, unfortunately, sometimes when people get into these positions, they view their role as larger than it is. And they believe it's up to them to make policy and to make political calculations and analyses. And I thought that was just bonkers. But that's why you have oversight from the elected officials and the appointed officials, such as the attorney general, who is appointed by the elected officials directly, appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. It took the actions of two branches of government for William Barr to get into office. And according to the New York Times, he should act like a potted plant thereafter. Here is really the key. They put this in a separate excuse me, a separate paragraph, standalone paragraph, I suspect, to make it look unusual, but indeed, they don't realize that this paragraph, set off as it is, demonstrates the truth, accuracy, and appropriateness of Bill Barr's behavior in contrast to the import of this hit piece. It it quotes Bill Barr saying, because I am ultimately accountable for every decision the department makes, I have an obligation to ensure we make the correct ones. That's exactly right. Because if the Department of Justice does something wrong, who gets blamed? The attorney general. And how do we, as the people who put him in that place through our elected officials, ensure that accountability? We call up the president, and you can call the White House, by the way, and we call up our elected officials. For me, that would be French Hill. He's my congressman. I support him. I endorse him. And, of course, our two great senators, uh, Senator Bozeman and Senator Cotton, Cotton, and you call their offices, and you tell them, hey, I don't like this. Go fix it. And either they do or they don't. And if they don't, guess what? You get to vote against them. Well, Rob, I'm not going to vote for someone. Well, life's about choices. You get to pick the best that you got, and that's all you get to choose. And absolutely, amen, if I had a senator from any party or a congressman or anything, I'm not trying to pick on any particular position, president, and he was conservative but kept doing things I didn't like, I'd vote against him too. Or I'd sit out the election, which might tip it in favor of the other guy who I don't particularly like either. The point is, elections matter, and they matter because your voice matters. You're the one who makes the decision. And when an elected official starts acting like a king, it's time to go. When they start telling you what to think, it's time for them to go. When they start telling you how to behave, there was a famous speech given by Jimmy Carter, one of the most feckless and disappointing presidents in the history of the United States. And it was called the malaise speech because he started to preach to the United States. Oh, you see, we're in a we're in a malaise. I can't do a particularly good Jimmy Carter, so I do my other person voice. We're in a malaise here, you see, and we need to buck up. People, All right, you need to Robert, buck up. we need I'm to a- stop right there because uh, we have to get to Rush Limbaugh. We got to hear what he has to say. Let's go to a break. Rush is next on 101.1 FM, The Answer. 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck, filling for Dave all of this week, as well as this coming Monday. Please stay tuned throughout the day to 101.1 FM, The Answer, for interesting news and commentary, including the Dave Ellswick Show. We have a real treat for you folks. We have on the line with us Ed Monk, who is a firearms expert and instructor here in uh, the central Arkansas area. He's out there in Whitehall. He's a police officer as well, a former um, uh, colonel in the United States Army. And he uh, is going to talk to us about, you bet, you got it, firearms, personal safety. Ed, how are you? Well, I'm good, uh, Robert. Appreciate you having me on. I wouldn't. I think you're stretching it to call me a treat, but I'm here. <laughs> well, it's all relative, you know. When you have to listen to my scratchy voice for three hours on the Dave Ellswick show, hearing anybody else speak uh, with with a milder sounding voice uh, than mine is a treat. In any event, well, let's get straight to it, Ed. I had seen uh, a, a video released, and we talked about it. You and I did off the air, uh, this video of these two cops getting shot in, now where was it? In, in Oklahoma, right? Tulsa. And it happened at the end of June, but apparently they just released the video um, yesterday or the day before, whatever the case may be. And in this video, you see these two cops pulling over a guy, and he is um, driving erratically, and I think he was driving without a license. In other words, whatever the situation was, they couldn't let him drive, continue to drive. They would be responsible if they let him drive. So they go to arrest him, and he resists arrest. And the, the end of the story is tragic. He resists arrest, and they're trying to pull him out of the car, and they're, they're being, I think, actually fairly polite to him. You need to get out of the car. And it's a sort of excessively long process to get this guy out of the car. And eventually, he, they get him out of the car as he drags his right hand behind in the car. And as they get him out, sure enough, he pulls a gun out that he had hidden in the car. And he shoots both of them, kills one of them. And I think he's gotten away, meaning I don't think they caught him, but I'm not sure about that. So I'd like you to talk about that to... I want to set this context up for Dave's listeners so they realize, I think they do already, but to emphasize the realization that cases like the Jacob Blake case, in which this guy simply refused to follow lawful orders of the police and then jumped into headfirst, so to speak, into a car where it turns out there was a knife, but it doesn't much matter what it turns out to be, that that was a grave risk to these police officers, and that was an absolutely justified shoot, notwithstanding that Joe Biden decided to call that person uh, Blake, Jacob Blake. So talk to us about that, please. Well, you know, when, when police officers go through training, they study cases like this. So they see a lot of videos of uh, traffic stops, domestic uh, violence encounters and other things, and they see where mistakes were made and police were shot, killed, maimed as a result of it. So they, they all have this in their mind. And, of course, you see it in the news all the time like we see it here. 
So when they do a traffic stop, when they go to a domestic call, they always have those in the back of their mind. So when people make furtive movements and they move towards things, that's what makes uh, police officers uneasy because they've seen these things before. Um, this guy in Tulsa, I believe they did catch him. I believe they they charged him with capital murder. Um, Great. Uh, and they gave him every possible chance. Uh, but like I told you yesterday, if someone has a gun on them or has a gun within reach, a handgun especially, and they want to shoot you, they are probably going to shoot you until you get control of their hands. And that's what handcuffs are for. Until you get control of their hands, if they want to shoot you, they can. So when police do a stop, they're on some kind of high alert anyway. And if they, if, if you start seeing things go wrong, furtive movements, nervous behavior, uh, you can't produce any kind of identification, you, you don't follow commands, that just heightens the level of care, intensity, suspicion that they have. Well, and now, and of course, entirely correct. I'm not here to be an arbiter of what's correct, but it's correct, I say, in the sense that any rational analysis would produce that outcome. This is not an insider analysis per se, albeit you have much more knowledge being an insider. Now, relate what happened with Jacob Blake. Remember, this is the guy who was shot seven times in the back. Oh, seven times, as if the number of shots is the important issue here. Uh, And it's not. That's the point I'm trying to make. Jacob Blake uh, refused orders of the police. They tried to stun gun him. Listen, I don't need to give too much of the story. I would like you to analyze that situation for the person who was being, who had the police called on for committing a sexual assault, no less. Uh, So please tell us what your views and what objectively transpired in that situation. Well, again, I only know what I have seen in the news, but again, it, 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 there's some similar things to this thing in Tulsa. You, you show up, you already know there's a history. He's refusing to comply. He's refusing commands. He's attempting to get away, and then he reaches into a place where you can't see. Um, if you wait until the weapon is produced, you're pro- it, that is probably too late. Until, if you wait until you see, confirm there's a weapon pointed at you, it's probably too late. The number of shots, if, if you're, and this is my opinion and mine alone, if you're legal in the first shot, you're legal every shot after that until the situation that, that made it legal for you to shoot the first shot goes away. So whether it's one, two, three, six, seven, in our gun training, we can show videos of shootings where one shot stopped violent behavior and 15 shots didn't. So the, the number of shots, that alone doesn't prove anything. What if, if you're legal to shoot up and until the point that the deadly threat goes away, or the reasonable suspicion of deadly threat goes away? Indeed. And what's important about that, and I'd like to sort of expand upon it, is that a lot of people don't realize a handgun is not a terribly powerful weapon. And you can easily shoot someone and put this relatively small hole in the person and they can continue to operate for some time. Now, some time is usually not hours, but it's minutes. And if that person has a weapon, those minutes can be used to kill you. And so yeah, how does it go ahead? No, I think the, the, the saying is shooting somebody to death doesn't do you any good if you don't live to see it. So That's it's right. possible you, 
few one or two rounds that tears through things in the human body that will eventually cause their death. But if it takes them, like you said, one, two, three minutes to bleed out, lose consciousness, um, they can still be violent against you up and up into including killing you before they bleed out uh, as a result of the wounds you gave them. Indeed. Indeed. And so I think that is such a critical factor that is often missed, particularly by the left, but by all, not, not all people, but people of all political persuasions when they ask the question in a legitimate fashion or in an undermining fashion, either way, why was this, why were this number of shots fired? And the answer is almost inevitably because it took that number of shots to stop the person from continuing to act. You can easily, as you point out, shoot someone once and they don't stop or depending where you hit them, they do stop. And so that evaluation needs to be made at that moment. And of course, you don't shoot and pause and wait. Let me see. Did the guy, is the guy shooting back at me? No, this is all happens in split seconds. So the number of yeah. shots, go ahead, please, Ed, go. No, I just think so, just that I, people, if they understand this, then, you know, if you get, if you have a traffic stop, no one likes to get stopped, I understand that. But if you have a traffic stop or any kind of official contact with police, just try to understand their perspective and just try not to make any furtive movements. Try not to, try to make your hands visible and not reach toward anything suddenly uh, without any prior warning. Um, yeah. There's another famous case uh, that a lot of cops have seen a traffic stop at a convenience store, and the the driver of the car was, was outside of the car, and he reached in to get his wallet. His wallet was on the dashboard of the car. His driver's side window was down, but he reached in quickly to get the wallet. Totally innocent in his mind what he was doing. In fact, it was. But to the officer, it appeared like he was reaching for a weapon, and so the officer shot him. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it can result in tragedy. And that's why we are providing this public service. I mean that to Dave's listeners to say, listen, there is a right way to interact with the police. And that obligation is not only on the police, but it's on you as a citizen to understand it. I recall once many, many years ago, I got pulled over for some traffic violation. I don't think I actually got a ticket out of it. I have gotten a few tickets in my lifetime, but I don't think that resulted in one. In any event, this cop pulls me over, and he asks me for the license, etc. And for some reason, I went to open the door, I, maybe to get up to pull the wallet out and hand it to him. And it was almost like that scene from Star Wars where he said, you don't need to get out of the car. You know, when when the in Star Wars, these these aren't the droids you're looking for, and of course, I then immediately realized what he was doing. He was saying, essentially, look, it's safer if you don't get out because then I won't feel threatened that you're standing up next to me. I'm not a big guy or anything, but still, it's a it's a more close uh, contact. And I said, oh yeah, sure, no, I I can stay here. That's fine, because I wasn't looking to get into an argument with him. Now. Let's say he had given me a ticket and I disagreed with it. I might say to him, but sir, I I don't think I was, say, let's make it up. I don't recall speeding. I don't think I was speeding. And if he says, well, uh, I I balled you and you were going such a, okay, that would be the end of my discussion with him. If I even entertained a discussion with him, I I would say one sentence to him if I disagreed with his assessment. And if he did not thereafter change his mind, I would say, 
well, I know who makes that decision. Not this guy, the judge. And I'll deal with it there. So you need to understand the perspective of the police officer as a good citizen and uh, and be polite. Now, if he's not polite, you can remember that. You can bring that up in court. And nowadays, you can show that video in court. That may or may not help your case, but it's interesting to note if a cop is acting like a jerk, they don't generally do so in my experience, but on occasion they do. And you can call them out for that. You can file a complaint for that because they need to act as good citizens as well. And their title, their badge, and their gun doesn't entitle them to be a jerk. So I think All right. we have obligations. Guys, let's stop yes. right there. Let's pick this conversation up in the le- in the next segment, our final segment Great. of the 7 a.m. hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach is talking to Ed Monk. We will complete their conversation coming up on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This <laughs> I am Robert Simon filling in for Dave. We are doing our last segment for the morning show. We have on the line with us Ed Monk, firearms expert here in the central Arkansas area. Ed, I'm going to thank you in advance for being on the show because as we get to the bottom of the hour, top of the hour, whatever it's called in radio, you know, I'm no expert on these things. Heidi does a wonderful job of interrupting me because I can't do two things at once, and that is pay attention to the time and talk to you. And so I may not have an opportunity to thank you for coming on the show yet again to inform Dave's listeners. So I do so now. In this last few minutes that we have together, I'd like to talk to you about this situation going on across America in which cops are being targeted because they are cops. And we see this every time the left gins up this story, this false narrative that as a cohort Cops are evil and cops are racist and cops are bad. It's nonsense. We know it's nonsense. Of course, there are bad apples, as the phrase goes. Oh, the left doesn't like it. Oh, they call them bad apples. Well, that's, that's an apt analogy. There are bad apples in the bunch, and it's more dangerous when a bad apple carries a gun than when he carries a pen, say. But nonetheless, the vast majority of cops are good. So I'd like to talk to you uh, about this situation, and maybe you can describe some of these situations that have taken place over the last several years in direct response to leftist activism in which cops are being shot. And by leftist activism, by the way, I say other acts of violence. I'm not talking about peaceful protests. Oh, it's all peaceful protests. Nonsense. So say a few words to Dave's listeners about that, if you can, please, Ed. Well, what just brings to mind is the saying is the issue is never the issue. Um, there's a political motivation for what people want, and but they just bring up emotional things with other things. There's there's a few people in every profession that are not good people that do a bad job at their, at their job. They're cops, priests, radio announcers, plumbers, pharmacists, everything. Um, so everybody knows all cops aren't bad, but there's, there's just a few bad apples like there are everywhere else. But you have to get the emotions up and you have to start chanting. And that, that leads to a few people who are on the edge. That'll motivate them to act. So we've had this shooting uh, in Los Angeles of the two cops, and this is not the first time we've had this. Over the last five, six years, we've had numerous cases. And what comes to mind is New York City, Philadelphia, Dallas, Baton Rouge, where people just go out and find police officers, not not police officers that have done a certain thing. It's just shooting a police officer uh, for a political message. And that's what we've got going on right now. And we know that, of course, Ed, those two cops, both of whom were shot in the face in L.A. 
by some thug. I think they were part of the sheriff's department, to be particular, about which police organization. They were shot in the face, and there are people videotaping it. Well, that's an old term, right? There are people recording it on their phones, and you hear them essentially cheering on the murderers or the would-be murderers. Luckily, neither one of them died, but the would-be murderers, and they're being cheered on by compatriots of this thuggery. It's really such a remarkable social commentary on the state of affairs. And we heard essentially the Biden campaign threaten that. They said, well, if Trump gets reelected, there'll be more of this. And we as good citizens of this great country can't succumb to threats of violence. We must resist and repel threats of violence. You, Ed, am I right, still are a police officer. Is that right? I'm a part-time police officer for a city in Arkansas, yes. Right. So tell us, excuse me, in these last few remaining minutes, what do you do today, given these events, differently than you've done before, if anything? Or is is your behavior the same? Um, While I'm serving as a police officer, my my behavior is the same. It might be a little heightened. This is several years ago when I was patrolling after one of the other uh, assassinations of police officers. Uh, there was a family driving around looking for a teenager who had run, you know, left home mad, and they were looking for him, and they drove by and saw my car and slammed on the brakes and pulled in really abruptly and quickly to, you know, to talk to me about their kid, but I didn't know that. I just saw a car that quickly saw a police car and pulled in towards it, and that, that heightened my suspicion a little bit. Uh, but when I'm off duty, I, I, I carry more ammunition. I carry more non-lethal weapons with me just because of the heightened chance of riots and violent protests that are going on. Indeed, we've seen in the press that more people are buying guns and more people are getting gun licenses. And you at the, uh, what's your name of your facility? The last resort. Give me the full name. Last last resort firearms training. Yeah. Our uh, request for training, both private lessons and classes have increased by about four, fourfold. That's amazing. That's amazing. Ed, I hear the music playing in the background. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Heidi. Oh, I was just saying, thank you so much, Ed, for coming on the show. Thank you, Robert. We will continue this conversation. We will continue with Robert, I should say, in the 6 p.m. hour tonight. You are listening to The Dave Ellsvick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. Financial Issues Live is up next. filling in for Dave for the remainder of this week and Monday. Welcome to the 6 p.m. hour of the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I was speaking to you all this morning about an article in the New York Times, and I use that term loosely, article that is. It's a piece, or better described as a hit piece, against Attorney General Bill Barr, 
entitled Bar Defends Right to Intrude in Cases as He Sees Fit. And as I discussed this morning, if you were listening in, but for those of you who didn't have that opportunity, I'll briefly repeat how loaded a title this is. And the text, of course, confirms this. Bar Defends Right to Intrude. The head of an organization doesn't intrude into that organization. The head of an organization oversees an organization. So the notion that it's an intrusion is, as the British say, bullocks, nonsense. Moreover, it says, as he sees fit, as opposed to what? As someone else sees fit? Now, of course, Bill Barr has a boss, too, and that's the president. So the president can give Bill Barr guidance as well. But absent that, his job is quite literally to operate that institution as he sees fit, of course, within the parameters of the law. But the article doesn't even suggest otherwise. As he sees fit. Of course it's as he sees fit. He is quite literally hired by the president, confirmed by the Senate, to use his judgment to act, I dare say, as he sees fit. As he sees fit. I want to pick up the text of this article somewhere in the middle. For the, We discussed the beginning of the article already this morning. If you missed it, I'm sorry, folks. You're going to have to tune in in the mornings or go back and listen to that podcast. I repeated the critical parts, and I'm going to continue in the, somewhere in the middle. Middle, excuse me, in the middle of the article, and it says, for months, Mr. Barr has been accused of politicizing the Justice Department, particularly by interfering in legal matters that benefit President Trump or his a- allies. Again, interfering. How do you interfere in something that's yours? You can't. And by the way, I don't mean his personally. I mean, the attorney general is in charge of every single case that operates out of that office. Remember, I criticized this local judge here in Little Rock, this local federal uh, judge, uh, Billy Roy Wilson. I want to say junior, but I'm not sure that's right or not. Uh, Billy Roy Wilson decided to tell a local law firm that the named partner in the law firm, the Sanford law firm, that is, couldn't charge, couldn't bill on a particular case that appeared uh, before Billy Roy Wilson. He took off the request for all of those fees because he said, well, the other attorney could handle that on his own. Excuse me? Excuse me? If anything goes out under the name of that law firm, which is the name of the name partner, as it turns out, that name partner has a right to review it and to bill for it. Not excessively, not for an enormous number of hours, but to review it? Absolutely. That's why people often hire that law firm, because of the wisdom and judgment of that individual named partner, managing partner, notwithstanding that the day-to-day operations on the case are performed by somebody else. That's how entities operate. The top dog, so to speak, it's his job to look over everything. Now, in the attorney general's office, There are thousands upon thousands of cases. So the attorney general, of course, needs other people to report back on those cases so that he doesn't have to physically review every case. It would be physically impossible. But the notion that the attorney general would review any case or all cases is entirely why he's been hired. It says here in in this hit piece in February, Mr. Barr overrode a sentencing recommendation for Mr. Trump's longtime friend and ally, Roger 
Stone Jr. with a more lenient one. And in May, he directed the Washington Federal Prosecutor's Office to withdraw the government's case against Michael Flynn, the president's first national security advisor, who twice pleaded, I prefer pled, but who twice pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. Yeah, after the FBI set him up, that's right. That's right. They set him up. And then they leveraged a threatened prosecution against his son to extract a guilty plea by Flint. I've long said, well before President Trump was ever even elected, I've long said that it is morally objectionable, and I believe a violation of an attorney's ethical obligations to say to a defendant, if you plead guilty to X, we won't charge your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your mother, your father. I don't think they should be able to do that. Well, Rob, you see, but that's a good thing because maybe they're both guilty. And this way, at least you get a, a guilty plea from one and you save governmental resources. There are times in which morality overrides efficiency. And this is one of those times. You don't threaten one person with a prosecution of another person because it can over-influence that person. In other words, that person might not believe himself to be guilty and might not believe his, say, spouse, child, parent to be guilty, but nonetheless will plead guilty to spare the other person the prosecution. The thing about guilty pleas is we only want them if the person is actually guilty. And if we over-motivate the person to plead guilty, then we risk having innocent people plead guilty. Well, Rob, that's up to the, the, the person. You know, if the government thinks he's guilty they should, and the spouse says he's guilty, the government should go ahead. Within reason. I'm cautious about when, quote, the government thinks someone is guilty, meaning simply not that they're ill-motivated, but the government can get it wrong. So one of the checks on the government getting it wrong is that in plea arrangements, the government should not be given a tool that over-entices defendants to plead guilty when they may, in fact, not be guilty. So when Bill Barr went back and said, hmm, those so-called guilty pleas, I've looked at them. He was over-motivated to plead guilty, and those involved in the prosecution have demonstrated a bias, and... Those involved in the prosecution demonstrated that they didn't follow governmental procedure. Comey proudly proclaimed that he snuck in his agent to the White House, contrary to normal practice and DOJ practice, to interview Flynn without going through the proper protocols and informing the White House counsel's office. What about that? What about that? But we don't hear that being discussed by those on the left. Those on the left, by the way, who traditionally have been the civil libertarians. Conservatives historically have not had a great record on civil liberties. When the Supreme Court started to enforce civil liberties, the conservatives called them loopholes. No, no, conservatives were wrong. For the most part, maybe there's some anomaly in there, but for the most part, no. Civil liberties is what protects you, me, and people like Flynn 
from wrongful prosecutions. Don't call those things loopholes. There's no such thing as a loophole in the Constitution. It's called a constitutional right. And so when these lefties who advocated for civil liberties their whole lives abandoned them, it's only further evidence of what I said in the morning show. That is that the left has now adopted a policy that the ends justify the means. Remember what types of governments have operated under the left, under the, you know, well, the left's view that the ends justify the means. The communists, they rounded up people, they sent them to gulags, they sent them to re-education camps. Well, because it's for the good of the people, not those people. And I've seen similar operations in, in bureaucracies in the United States across this country. Where it, well, you know, for the good of the institution, we've got to speak out against this one person who has a conservative view. For the good of the institution, we've got to get rid of this one person who has a conservative view. For the good of the institution, bollocks, I say. You know who's for good it is? For those unelected leftist bureaucrats who don't want any dissenters saying otherwise. So when you see unelected bureaucrats seeking to enhance their power, seeking to restrict the power of the appointed governmental official, be afraid, be very afraid, because that's where your freedoms disappear. That's the black hole of civil liberties, is when unelected, often leftist bureaucrats take control and have no oversight. Be afraid, be very afraid. The article, The Hit Piece, goes on to say, reflecting widespread concerns amongst, among rank-and-file lawyers, a former department prosecutor said in an op-ed article that the Stone and Flint interventions would inflict, quote, lasting damage to the institution, end quote, and that, quote, the department, again, put political patronage ahead of its commitment to the rule of law, end quote. Well, let me tell you, I am a former Justice Department attorney. They've got a quote from some former Justice Department attorney. Good for them. There are thousands of us out there in the world. I am a former Justice Department attorney, and I am glad that Attorney General Barr has taken control over the unelected, often leftist bureaucracy in that department. And similarly, by the way, the unelected bureaucracy in the FBI. It's a scandal, a scandal what has gone on at the upper echelons of the FBI. By the way, it's also a scandal that that building is still named after J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was a a rights violator. He was a criminal is what he was. He violated the constitutional rights of Americans, left and right. He threatened people. He blackmailed people. J. Edgar Hoover is a criminal, was a criminal. And his name needs to be stripped from that building. That's the next thing that needs to happen. And liberal and conservative president alike historically have left that name on the building. Because his lasting legacy of blackmail and corruption threatens our good name of government even to this day. But... The government officials are afraid, well, you know, if I do that, maybe I look this or I look, I look too pandering. I look this, I look that. I don't know. But I can tell you this, the smart move, the right move is to strip that hack's name from that building. 
That's part of the cleanup that we need to do. Remember, the left has always been the one that wanted to have greater observation of law enforcement. They want these civil commissions to review local police. Why don't we have a civil commission reviewing the FBI? I've known FBI agents, and they are overwhelmingly honest, good, hardworking men and women. But as we go up the chain of command, the cream doesn't rise. And we have seen corruption, cronyism, patronage go on. And Comey is a model example of that. Comey was an awful FBI director. And so when we read an article, a hit piece against the attorney general saying, how dare he intervene what's going on in the department that he oversees, which includes the FBI. The FBI reports to the attorney general. Well, thank goodness Comey's doing the job that previous attorney generals have not. You think Lynch under Obama was not political, by the way? Please. All right, Robert, let's continue this thought in the next segment. You are listening to The Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave as Dave is on vacation. Robert Steinbach is a law professor at UA Little Rock's Bowen School of Law. We will continue after after this short break, I should say, on The Dave Ellswick Show. This is The Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. We are talking about this New York Times hit piece on Bill Barr, the attorney general. I want to continue reading from this article. I use that term charitably. It says, but in his speech, referring to Bill Barr, on Wednesday night, Mr. Barr said that it was well within his power as attorney general to be the final arbiter in all cases before the Justice Department. While that assertion is technically true, past attorneys general have typically let the deputy attorney general run the day-to-day matters of the department and have even distanced themselves from politically fraught issues. Let me break down how remarkably wrong that those statements are. Well, it's technically true. I love when people say this, right? I earlier criticized, by the way, the historical practice of some conservatives years back when they called constitutional rights technicalities. Now, the left is doing the same. Well, it's technically true that he's in charge. Technically true. It is true that the attorney general is in charge. But here's the real perversity. This author doesn't even understand how the Department of Justice operates. It says, well, it's technically true, but past attorneys general have typically typically let the deputy attorney general run the day-to-day matters. The deputy attorney general? Oh, well, that deputy attorney general, that must be a member of the civil service, right? That must be one of these entrenched bureaucrats. No! The attorney general is appointed the same way. I don't know if he goes. I think he even goes through a Senate confirmation, in fact. But certainly it's a political appointment. The attorney, the deputy attorney general is the number two in charge of the the Department of Justice and no less a political appointment as is the attorney general. You know who a well-known former deputy attorney general was? Rudy Giuliani. I like Rudy Giuliani, but did you ever think that his appointment in the Department of Justice was not a political appointment? Of course it was. 
the attorney general and the deputy attorney general are both politically appointed positions so that they are responsible to the elected officials who are responsible to you, the taxpayer. So this is the the not-so-slick sleight of hand of this leftist author who doesn't understand the operation of the United States Department of Justice because she never worked in the United States Department of Justice. I did! The Deputy Attorney General, the Associate Attorney General, the Assistant Attorney Generals are all, are all appointments that are political. I remember that when I served in the Civil Division, the head of the Civil Division, and I believe it was the Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Division, was Al Gore's brother-in-law. Do you not think that's a political appointee? By the way, I'm not saying the guy was a bad appointment. I didn't have much interaction with the guy. I'm not sure I had any direct interaction. I certainly had subsidiary interaction, so to speak. But I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad appointment. But was it a political appointment? 100% it was a political appointment. Uh, To be clear, this was during the Clinton administration. Al Gore was the vice president at the time, and his brother-in-law... His sister's husband, his sister, I believe, had passed already at the time. She, sadly, quite sadly, died of cancer at a relatively young age. Uh, And so really tragic. That's an aside. But, of course, he was still close with his sister's husband, widowed husband, widowed husband. And so that was a political appointee. So don't kid yourself. But, of course, the New York Times sets up a dichotomy that doesn't actually exist. Oh, well, we're, at least we got the deputy attorney general. Oh, the other political appointee? What's, is there a difference? Is there a difference? The article goes on to say, Mr. Barr also said that it was his job to push back on career lawyers and make important judgment calls because those prosecutors were too narrowly focused or too inexperienced to know how to best handle delicate cases. Quote, Letting the most junior members set the agenda might be a good philosophy for a Montessori preschool, but it is no way to run a federal agency, he said. 100% true, and I can tell you this. When I was one of those junior attorneys in the Department of Justice, I welcomed that. Because as I would write my briefs and litigate my cases, my one concern that I knew was addressed, mind you, my one concern was, okay, I think this is the right way to approach this. But is there some broader policy and legal implication that I'm not aware of? Because all I do is this narrow focus. And I knew that that issue was resolved through the oversight process, as I described this morning on the Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Uh, Every piece of paper that left my office could not go out before it was reviewed by a more senior member of the Department of Justice. And I do remember one time thinking, I'm making a legal argument here. I think it's an interesting legal argument. I think it's a good legal argument. But there is a competing legal argument that could be made. Which way should we go? And in in that instance, I believe, if I recall correctly, I contacted my superior in advance. And I said, look, I think there are two competing legal arguments here. And I don't want to say one that's contrary to what the department on the whole is making. As it turned out, I chose right, but that's not a compliment, meaning they were both good legal arguments. 
And so, yeah, that's exactly the role of the superiors all the way up the chain. All right, Robert, we have to we have to uh, take a break for the news that is coming up next. Robert Steinbach will be back on the Dave Ellswick show right now. Here's the news. This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave all of this week and next Monday. Stay tuned, please, to 101.1 FM, The Answer, all day, in fact, for interesting news and commentary. And, of course, the Dave Ellsworth Show in the morning from 6 to 8 a.m. and generally in the evening from 6 to 7 p.m., but for Wednesdays, which is 7 to 8 p.m. We are talking, as you know, about this hit piece in the New York Times against Attorney General Bill Barr. And the remarkable part about it is, as I demonstrated just prior to the last break, the author really has no understanding of the most basic operation and the most basic structure of the Department of Justice, yet she criticizes the Attorney General implicitly, as is often embedded in articles in the New York Times criticizes that the attorney general has not stepped away because of his political appointment from certain operations of the department. And that's wrong on two levels. First of all, it's his job to provide oversight and a type of political oversight in the sense that he operates at the discretion of the president who operates at the discretion of the electorate, you and me. And without that kind of oversight, we would have a runaway bureaucracy. And secondly, this author is so ignorant as to the basic operations of the Department of Justice that she she suggests, well, essentially, that it would be preferable to have the deputy attorney general be involved in the day-to-day operations of the department, but not the attorney general, even though the deputy attorney general is 100% just as much a political appointment that changes with elections as is the attorney general. There's no difference in terms of political appointment status. So if you're complaining, well, the, the attorney general is a political appointee. So is the deputy. 100%. In fact, two or three layers down are political appointments. So you want to let the junior line attorney make policy? Seriously? I was a junior line attorney. I loved that job. It was a fantastic job. I worked with wonderful and extremely intelligent people. But I never sought out or thought that I should be determining policy. My job was to be a lawyer, a representative, in this case, of the government in court. Not to determine the policy of the government. So, for example, uh, when I settled cases for the government... And I did so. I would go to my superiors and say, okay, well, what can we settle this case for? Can we pay out to the plaintiff some money? How much is appropriate? How would I know? How would I know in the grand scheme of things, what was the appropriate amount to pay out given a certain factual circumstance? There needs to be some regularity in that behavior. And that is accomplished by having senior folks make those calls. Those are policy determinations. I had no desire to make that determination. That was not my job. Let me go on to uh, uh, read on from this article. 
It says, while Mr. Barr did not, did not mention the Flynn or Stone cases by name, he said that following the letter of the law and the spirit of fairness sometimes meant, quote, investing months or years in an investigation and then concluding it without criminal charges. I think this is such a critical point. I recall when I was applying for a job at the Department of Justice, I, as I mentioned, I worked in the civil division, but I spoke to, to folks about applying to do criminal work as well. I was interested in both. I had a slight, slightly greater interest in doing the civil work. In fact, that was my background, and I sought to continue it, and I did, and luckily so, in the sense that I, I greatly enjoyed my time in the Department of Justice. And in fact, I worked in an office with either unique or relatively rare exposure in the sense that I got to do both trial and appellate work in the same office. Very unusual in the Department of Justice. That's usually broken up into separate offices, but we got to do both, and I did both. And I'm so glad I had that opportunity, in fact. In any event, as I just read you, it was talking about the need to investigate cases and at times not prosecute them. And so when I, I spoke to some former prosecutors in investigating for myself which job I would like more. And they and we talked about the interview process, and they said, well, Rob, we'll let you in on a, a little, quote, secret. It wasn't really a secret, but they said, we'll let you in on some of the interview questions that we received when we applied for these jobs. And one of the questions that had, at the time, often been asked, I believe it's been scrapped at this point, was, Okay, you're a prosecutor, you're prosecuting a case, and the case has now been sent to the jury, and then you got this piece of information that makes you now believe that the defendant is indeed not guilty. What do you do? You, and, and you try to reach all of your superiors, and you can't. Now, that's not particularly realistic, by the way, but, of course, they set up this hypothetical uh, to just test your thinking. So what's left? Either you do nothing, or you contact the judge and say, on behalf of the government, I need to withdraw those charges because I have come to the conclusion that they are not proper. And the then proper answer, and this is wrong, but this, what, this is the answer they wanted was, well, then you'll let the jury decide. No, no. As Bill Barr points out, the only way our system can effectively operate is if the prosecutors are the first line defense against wrongful prosecutions. And if you leave it over to the court, you have taken away a critical component that defends the civil liberties of Americans from top to bottom. So if we can't do that, you have no rights. And that's the point that Bill Barr points out here. He says, yeah, sometimes you do an investigation and you don't charge the guy. That's the way it should be. If every time you did an investigation, you charge the guy, boy, that would mean you never got it wrong. That would mean the information that you started with was always exactly as you thought it would be. Really? Always right? Infallible? Really? I know James Comey acts that way, but really? That's the travesty here. That the, these unelected leftist bureaucrats and their mouthpieces in the mainstream media believe that the outcome justifies the means. And therefore, in this instance, well, we don't want any oversight. If a prosecution is started by some mid-level unelected bureaucrat in the FBI, well, it's got to go all the way. Uh, No, it doesn't. 
uh, no, you guys have blinders on. Uh, you guys are not thinking objectively. Uh, by the way, that pause is intentional to show the kind of uh, um, reaction to the sheer lunacy that can take place when you have an unelected bureaucracy driving the train instead of simply being a car behind the locomotive. That locomotive must be accountable to the people. That operation, that entity must be accountable to the people. And we do that by having those appointed by our elected officials and confirmed by our elected officials providing the oversight that they were hired to do. Otherwise, what are they? A potted plant? Some of you might recall that reference from the Ali North prosecution during the Reagan administration. The article continues, Mr. Barr also alluded to his past statements that the investigation into Russia interference in the 2016 election had been improperly initiated by career department employees who could not accept the results of the race. That assertion has been disproved by a Republican-led Senate intelligence panel and the Justice Department's inspector general. That is a lie. A lie is what that is. The inspector general did an investigation of, amongst others, this, this awful creep, Peter Stroke. And Peter Stroke said, we're going to have an insurance policy against the president. And of course, folks, what's that insurance policy? That insurance policy is the initiation of an investigation against the president. That's what the insurance policy is. Peter Stroke repeatedly said over government email how awful he believed the president to be and how dangerous it would be for the president to be elected and how he would have an insurance policy against that. And the inspector general declared that there's no evidence that that motivated Peter Stroke's behavior. No evidence. No evidence. The email is the evidence. The statement that he will have an insurance policy against the president is, in fact, by definition, the evidence. Now, by the way, it's okay if the inspector general says he's not convinced that Peter Stroke was motivated by that improper desire in his activities. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion as to their conclusion as to what motivated Peter Stroke, because we have no way to fully know that. We can't get into his mind and read his mind. We don't have a mind reading machine. So we can only conclude by outside evidence as to what's inside a person's mind. That's why intent in any criminal case is almost invariably presented through information that leads us to a conclusion about intent, but it's not direct. It is indirect. It is circumstantial evidence of intent. But yet we conclude intent all the time when we prosecute people. But we do it through indirect evidence. The thing about indirect evidence is it usually can lead to more than one conclusion. You just have to decide which you find more persuasive and whether it's persuasive enough to meet the burden of proof. But the inspector general, the, the, the statement in the article is disproved that, that Peter Stroke was motivated by his 
state as reflected in his statement that he had an insurance policy against the president, that he disproved that that ill motive caused Peter Strzok to do what he did? No, he didn't. Because you can't disprove intent. That's a lie. This article is a lie. You can't disprove that. You can offer evidence to both sides and then draw a conclusion. The inspector general is entitled to draw whatever conclusion he wants on such evidence. But the reporter is not entitled to say that the inspector general disproved it. This is clear political bias, leftist bias by the mainstream media. The article continues to quote the attorney general. It says, quote, I'd like to be able to say that we don't see headhunting at the Department of Justice, but that would not be truthful. It is a temptation sometimes to go after people rather than crimes. If you don't believe that, if you want to put blind faith into any law enforcement um, department, there's a better word for that, but I can't think of it, organization, then you don't believe in civil liberties. Meaning, if you think what the police do is 100% correct, and I don't mean that as morally correct, I mean 100% accurate that they know exactly what has transpired at all times, then why do you have prosecutors and judges? If a police officer or a federal agent arrests somebody, that should be the end of it. Well, the person's guilty. Throw them in jail. We have prosecutors and we have judges as checks on that. So as I said throughout the show, and I've said before, I think overwhelmingly we have honest police officers and federal agents. But they, sometimes you have dishonest ones, and sometimes you have honest ones who get it wrong. And you want to build into the system as we have, and as the left used to admire, protections for our civil liberties. That's why we have a prosecutor who's the next check. And then if the prosecutor believes the case should go to trial, it goes to trial, and we have a judge and ultimately a jury of your peers determining guilt. These are all checks. But according to this author... You don't need any of those checks. All right, Robert, let's continue that thought into our next segment, which will be the last segment of the 6 p.m. hour of the Dave Ellswick show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick. Robert Steinbach is a law professor with the Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. We will continue this conversation coming up next on the Dave Ellswick show. 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave. This is our last segment of the 6 o'clock hour here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Stay tuned after the show for further insights. But please tune in to the Dave Ellswick Show every day from 6 to 8 a.m. here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, and the evenings every day but Wednesday, 6 to 7, and on Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. In this last segment, We're going to finish up our conversation of this hit piece on the attorney general in the New York Times, unsurprising as that is these days. I've heard liberals and conservatives alike, by the way, say exactly that. What have they been saying? They say, look, Rob, I get it. I'm a liberal. I get it. I read the New York Times. It's no longer an objective newspaper. It's that simple. When liberals are telling you that, You know it must be true because then nobody disagrees. The left and the right agrees that the New York Times is no longer an unbiased newspaper. Look, it's one thing. 
for a newspaper to have some bias, some slight leanings, because as with anything, perfect calibration is very difficult. You ever try to cut a two by four, you got to cut it two and a half feet. Well, is it an eighth of an inch off? Uh, did you take into account the thickness of the blade, that kind of thing? So we try to get it, you know, the old saying goes, measure twice, cut once. We try to get it as close as we can, but inevitably it might be a 30-second off too big or too small, and then you can't really cut it, right? If it's too small, you certainly can't cut it, but even if it's too big, you can't really get rid of a 30-second by cutting it again. At best, you can shave it off. This analogy has gone on too long, but my point is, at the margin, I don't have a problem that historically the New York Times was marginally leaning to the left, but this, there's nothing marginal about this. This is the difference between a paper cut and a chainsaw gash. The New York Times have, has gone from a paper cut in terms of its leaning left to a chainsaw gash leaning to the left. This hit piece goes on to say, it's quoting um, Bill Barr again. Advocating for clear and defined prohibitions will sometimes mean we cannot bring change, charges rather against someone whom we believe engage in questionable conduct. But that is what it means to have a government of laws and not of men. We cannot let our desire to prosecute, quote, bad and quote, people turn us into the functional equivalent of the mad emperor Caligula. And that's exactly right. In a criminal justice system that is proper, that respects civil liberties, we don't go after, quote, bad people, end quote. We go after bad acts. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard prison guards and other people in similar positions say to me, well, you know, if he wasn't guilty of this, he's guilty of something. That is an absolutely dangerous philosophy. Now, is it empirically likely to be true? Sure. As a matter of fact, it is. As a matter of fact, it is. But what happens if you're the one guy swept up in that likelihood? That is, for the most part, once a cop charges someone or arrests someone, the likelihood is that person's guilty. So why bother with any of the other protections? Why? Because you may be the one person swept up in that system who's not guilty. And I don't want to be that person swept up in that position. And I don't want someone else to be that person, in fact. It's not only about my own self-interest. It's about my moral interests in ensuring that good people aren't prosecuted. What a travesty that is. Much like the travesty that was the prosecution of, of uh, what's his name again now? A Flynn, thank you. Flynn, that was a travesty. And by the way, the Stone prosecution, what, what was the travesty there? That they sought to put him in jail for almost the rest of his life, if not the rest of the, his life, given his age and health? That was wholly disproportionate to what those charges were about. Wholly disproportionate. Remember, of course, that the FBI or the unbiased FBI, according to the, the leftist New York Times and their compadres who all of a sudden have given complete deference to law enforcement say what right this is the same leftist machine that says we need to defund the police unless they're going after conservatives right on the one hand think about this 
contrast. On the one hand, they're all about defund the police. The police are systemically racist. They're systemically biased. But not when they're going after General Flynn. Not when they're going after Stone, Roger Stone, who I'm no big fan of, by the way. Then all of a sudden, well, you can't question him. You can't have oversight by the attorney general. Because, uh, gosh knows, the FBI is doing everything proper all the time. Yet they show up at Stone's house, coincidentally, with CNN cameramen in tow. Boy, isn't that a coincidence? Or perhaps one alternative is it wasn't a coincidence at all. What it was is that they contacted CNN because they had a political agenda so that this would be filmed and the takedown would be filmed. Do you really think you, this is another thing, you need to show up to Roger Stone's house at 3 o'clock in the morning with, with ARs? Uh, assault weapons, according to the left, they had assault weapons. By the way, why didn't we hear any complaint about their use of assault weapons? Those are weapons of war! You need to take down Roger Stone with weapons of war, according to the left? Not a peep. Because they're hypocrites and liars. That's why. Not a peep. They show up with assault weapons as defined by the left to take down Roger Stone, a 70-something-year-old old guy not in good health. Seriously? Think about that, folks. I hear the music playing in the background. Yes, sir. I need to calm down. (laughs) We will see you tomorrow morning, Robert, at 6 a.m. And join us back on the Dave Ellswick Show tomorrow morning from 6 to 8 a.m. And then in the evenings from 6 to 7 p.m., we will be... We will be right back tomorrow, and uh, you can enjoy the rest of the commentary coming up this evening. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer.